So, hello and welcome to another episode of the Indian Car Person podcast. Well, I've not been regular, but but I don't know. Maybe the industry is playing with me. <laughs> they understood that I'm making a podcast on stuff that's happening around us, and they absolutely stopped doing stuff. I mean, even the French Grand Prix wasn't interesting this time. But anyways, I'm getting ahead of myself. There is some automotive news because it's been so long since I last made a podcast. But at the same time, there is not much. Uh, there's updates about old cars, stuff we've already discussed, kind of glossed over in this podcast. Uh, but I'm going to bring an insight. Uh, this time we are going to discuss about design, just automotive design. It it is very different from what everyone perceives it to be. Even I perceived it to be something else before I well became one myself, uh, became a part of the industry. But it's interesting. It's interesting because uh, even though we focus so much on the engineering of the cars and how fast they go, it's it's actually how the cars look that actually kind of interested and attracted us to the cars in the first place. I mean, remember as kids, we we could only see cars. Experiencing cars wasn't much a privilege that we had. All our parents probably had boring cars. My father had a eight hundred when I was born. So experiencing the thrill of driving wasn't really an option. It never felt like it. But I did see Ferraris and Lamborghinis because I was brought up in Mumbai, and just looking at those cars is where I think my passion for cars started. And so design, I feel, is really important. We don't give design that importance, but especially in India, we don't give importance to design because we don't have any design houses in India. We don't have many. design institutes in india it's all focused around engineering but if you really understand how the design of a car works and how it used to work it's it's a very interesting story and it really shows you how how the cars that we all so dearly love and dream about were created at least visually but first we have some you know national international car news uh beginning with the Citroen C3 it's finally launched Yeah, that's all I'm going to say about it because I've covered it too many times in the previous podcast, and the leaked prices were bang on. I mean, not bang on, but almost precisely correct. Uh, they've also started deliveries already, uh, which is quite interesting. I guess that's the first car that we have seen from the last few launches that has been delivered. The Scorpio and hasn't been delivered yet. Uh, the High Rider and of course the Grand Vitara that was uh, just recently revealed hasn't been delivered yet. So, the first one, I guess, next would be the Scorpio. But let's see. Uh, at the same time, that brings us to the Grand Vitara. So the the High Riders Suzuki version, because it's actually a Suzuki car that Toyota took, but Toyota launched it first, and that's why it's kind of stuck as the urban cruiser High Rider in our head. But it, uh, in India, they've launched it as the Grand Vitara, bringing back that ancient, I would say, legacy nameplate. I don't know. It was never a successful car in India, but everyone's making a big fuss about how the Grand Vitara name has been reduced by this car, uh, and it was a legend in in the past. Well, if it was a legend, why didn't you buy one? That's the thing. People just like fancy things, but they don't look at everything from the point of view of a company. I mean, if Maruti Suzuki just kept making cars like the Vitara, which sold like the Grand Vitara back uh, back then. I think it was two thousand seven, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, somewhere around those lines where they discontinued it. Even if they kept making that car and such cars, which which sold in such volumes, they wouldn't be in India anymore. Uh, they are they are a small company. If you really look at it, in India they are behemoth because they are the largest in India and they got a grip on the Indian market and its needs. But internationally, Suzuki is a very small company at this point. It's so small that they had to force the Japanese government had to force them to merge with. Toyota in some way or the other, or like create a joint venture, so that Suzuki doesn't shut off and the people who are employed with Suzuki in Japan are not left unemployed. So really have to cut some slack to Suzuki, I would say, because uh, I understand while design to a certain extent now they have localized it and even construction for their cars, but the main platforms, the main engines, they're all created by Suzuki Global. Uh, Suzuki India really doesn't have that expertise yet uh, to create its own independent uh, independent engines, and I think the day it does, uh, we'll also also see a lot of engine variety from 
uh, Maruti just like we see with Hyundai and other companies today. So yes, the Grand Vitara was, uh, the name was revealed and the car was also revealed uh, shortly after. And I think it looked good. I mean, it, it is basically a different version of the High Rider. So the dimensions and the, I guess, overall presence would remain the same. But uh, I think it looks good. Both High Rider and the Grand Vitara look good to my eyes. I guess I would say I prefer the Grand Vitara's look over the High Rider. But that's just a personal opinion. I know a lot of people who prefer the High Rider over the Grand Vitara. Well, the prices have leaked. So the base variant will start at 9.5 lakhs X showroom, which is, I think, incredible for the size of the SUV and the quality it will offer because it's also going to spawn a Toyota version and Toyota doesn't mess with quality. And this won't be like a bad job car like they have the Urban Cruiser and the Galanza, but this is like a proper vehicle where they have put not only their badges, but also their technology. Like one of the vehicle variants of this car will be getting the Toyota hybrid and gearbox system. So they're not messing around. So it starts at 9.5, I think 15 for the top end in the 1.5 uh, Maruti engine variant, which I mean the both both the High Rider and the Vitara will get. But these prices are only for the Vitara. I'm not sure if if the High Rider would be priced exactly the same, but the expectation is 50,000 above this maxim maximum should make sense because otherwise it'll be very greedy for Toyota to charge more exponentially more for just the badge so it starts at 9.5 for the base bare bones variant with the 1.5 naturally aspirated engine and goes up till i think 15 15 lakhs x showroom for the top end version of the naturally aspirated uh, 1.5 and 15.5 lakhs x showroom for the all-wheel drive version which comes in the manual with the 1.5 naturally aspirated engine which is actually a suzuki all grip system uh, and uh, for the hybrids the two hybrids so hybrid version only has two variants uh, and those two are priced at 16 and 17 lakhs respectively for x showroom prices i'm talking which i mean i think this entire package is quite compelling and the base price at 9.5 is going to be a blockbuster because no other car in this segment has remained in that price price point and i feel this car will really steal a lot of sales especially from the vitara brezza i mean it's not the vitara anymore the brezza basically which which would be interesting to see how much it cannibalizes because even though it does it's still under maruti so the money goes to the same home so it doesn't matter which one sells more but this really creates a value proposition which the brezza can't offer at least in in today's form where it's kind of overpriced for the segment and along with that uh moving on we have a few sales figures i think uh, apparently mahindra has almost 1.5 lakh cars pending delivery like they have 1.5 lakh plus bookings but they haven't delivered the cars yet so yeah it, it's i don't think i've heard extremely uh, long waiting periods for the scorpio yet but that car has also hasn't been launched uh, officially. It's just still just speculation based on bookings and how they the the dealers are feeling that they would be able to get the cars dispatched. So it's still yet to be seen how long the Scorpio waiting period turns out to be. Uh, the Scorpio Classic, the current like the old Scorpio, which is going to continue being sold as a Scorpio Classic, has also been spotted almost undisguised. Uh, not much of changes i think it's they've added new colors to it and of course the new mahindra badge has been added and a new infotainment system i think and that's that's about it those are the changes and they've uh, rough the they've softened some of the corners it was still a very rudimentary car the the scorpio the one which just got replaced by the scorpio n so they've brushed those edges up also so i think for a scorpio buyer there's plenty of choice. I mean, there already are two Scorpios to choose from. So it would be an interesting uh, interesting observation to see what happens when both the Scorpios are simultaneously in the showrooms, which get hurt by whose sales. I mean, we know what the sales figure Scorpio had right before the Scorpio N was launched. And we've also seen the kind of fandom the Scorpio N has received. So it could either, it could go any way actually. We can have both cars selling decent numbers. We can have the Scorpio and selling really well with the Scorpio Classic uh, being lukewarm. 
we can have the Scorpio and selling so well that the Scorpio Classic doesn't even get a single sale. We we never know. It is yet to be seen because these sort of experiments to sell both the present generation and the future generation of the car on a big scale haven't been done. Uh, Honda City uh, is the car that already does it. There's the old city and the new city. But because the volumes of the city, both generations are not that big and they don't have such a big, uh, uh, I would say, fan following as much as the Scorpio, uh, the impact isn't that visible. Even though we know that the new Honda City sells way more than the uh, older one. Uh, which Honda has on sale and that also brings us to the Hector facelift I mean they're calling it the new new gen MG Hector but it's actually a facelift of the current Hector and will be followed by the facelift for the Hector plus uh, but apparently one it gets a 14 inch touchscreen which I think is kind of excessive but that could also be my personal jealousy because I have a Hector plus and I'm scared my Hector Plus is going to be old <laughs> very soon. It's been barely one and a half years, I think, since we bought the car. So it kind of hurts to know that the car might be old, you know, 1.5 years later. But anyways, so the only teaser that MG has given us is the 14-inch uh, display. But there have been leaks and rumors, and I think they've also given some details to the media. And according to that, apparently this would come on top of the current range of the Hector. So the current gen Hector will also keep selling and they will have an additional new gen Hector that will sit on top of that uh, and in the range of 20 to 25 lakhs, which makes me feel better. I mean, I hope that is the same plan they follow for the Hector Plus, but uh, we never know because the Hector is actually the main product and the Hector Plus was just, a, I would say an additional add-on to the same platform because of the uh, Indian seven-seater, six-seater market being so hot. So it'll be interesting to see what they do with the new gen Hector, but uh, confirmed things that I have heard at least are that it won't have a new engine, new gearbox, new suspension. All of those things will remain untouched. It's, it's gonna be mostly interior stuff that will be new. Uh, there'll be added feature and there'll be some changes to the exterior. But again, it will look quite different from the current Hector, so uh, it hurts. But I'm very happy with my car, so it's fine, I guess. It is bound to happen. No matter what car you buy, it will age eventually, you know. So, works for me, I guess. Uh, I think that covers everything. I'm not sure. And with this, we come to the end of our news segment. Internationally, we don't have much news. I think uh, Lamborghini... Oh, yeah, Lamborghini announced the Staraco. I mean, they just did teasers for it. Lamborghini did a concept, I think, two years back, which is basically a Huracan with off-road suspension and off-road tires, which I feel was is an incredible idea. And I feel every supercar should be sold like that in India because then we can absolutely use them and daily drive them because no worries at all. These things can go anywhere. So incredibly exciting to see because when the Staraco was released, it was released as a concept, like a one-off which Lamborghini never said it was going to bring into production, but they've now released official teasers and footage. And we've always obviously seen some spy shots of the car going around internally. So it shows that Lamborghini is bringing this into production, which would be very interesting to see. Uh, the Roma Spider has also been spotted, which I mean, I'm confused about it because the Roma is the coupe version of the so the Roma is supposed to be the coupe version of the Portofino. And so the convertible version of the Roma isn't that the Portofino, don't they already sell that? So I'm very confused about it. I'm guessing the, the convertible version of the Roma will get a soft top and maybe that's how they will differentiate between the Portofino, the Roma and the Roma Spider. It's yet to be seen what, what they do with this. I feel like they're kind of crowding this segment. Uh, they should maybe launch a different car and they already have i guess they have the roma and then that's followed by the 296 gtb i'm not sure what the naming is anymore but these names are getting ridiculously long uh, and the f tributo is also still on sale properly as an official car from ferrari so i guess this just they're diluting the segment a lot and i don't think they should do that uh, ferrari always had 
certain models in certain segments and that's it that's all they offer they never were selling a million cars in one one price bracket i would say and here we already have the portofino the roma and the f8 f8 normal i would say followed by the f8 spider all these cars are around the same price and then they are topped by the uh, the sf90 of course and also i think the 296 gtb which is yet to come is also priced a bit higher than uh, the f8 and the f8 spiders so it's an interesting strategy and also we're forgetting that the uh, ferrari pursan will also probably come in this segment uh, around the same price i don't think they can price it any higher than say a roma or or a roma spider or a portofino something like that uh, they will have to price it in that segment and i'm talking about in in terms of segments because pricing can differ from where you are in the world because in india everything will be extremely pricey whereas say if you compare the pricing to something like uh, the uk or the us it would be pretty sensibly priced so i'm not taking digits here but i'm talking about the rough segment because irrespective of where these cars are the the pricing is kind of similar so the proportion of the price difference is kind of similar and so it would it makes sense to compare them that way so let's see what strategy ferrari has they've had one of the best years and with the pursang i'm sure they are going to have many more best years but diluting the brand image might hurt them and they've been very straightforward about this that they don't want to dilute brand image and that's how they even sad a few relation with uh, with popular people who just wanted the ferrari to represent themselves rather than just the brand and they sent out lawyer cases towards them but let's see i guess lamborghini should learn something from them uh, i wish lamborghini had like a smaller car like around the huracan maybe a segment below the huracan it would be interesting to see uh, they they i don't think have any plans of doing that right now they have the urus they have the huracan uh, they have the aventador which is going to be replaced by another v12 uh but this v12 will be a hybrid this time so it's the end of naturally aspirated v12s but apart from this there's nothing that there's no new model lineup i would say that's coming up uh the urus is probably going to get a superleggera version or a performante version whatever they may call it but a sporty version basically and uh, the huracan replacement which is also being worked on right now will probably get the same engine from the urus that's my expectation but the rumors are it would get a v8 it would downsize from a v10 so when it's getting a v8 it makes sense for lamborghini to use the same one as they use in the urus because then they will only have to make two two specific engines right now they are making three specific engines in their engine assembly line one is the urus v v8 followed by the huracan v12 followed by the lamborghini aventador v10 v12 so let's see what they do I wish they make a smaller car it would be very interesting and I mean who doesn't love a Lambo and I'm sure with the success of the Urus they've seen what what they can do if they affordably price their cars as well as make them a bit more practical with this we come to an end to our news segment for these few weeks that I've not done the podcast for we haven't really had much but if as soon as we get more stuff i'll be more eager to create more podcasts so the frequency will increase as we have more information and more news floating around more rumors more stories going around but in days like these when we don't have much it, i'll have to be a bit picky about when i post the podcast anyways moving on so let's get on with today's design segment i guess i don't know what to call it okay but it's like a trivia thing because i feel like not a lot of people know much about automotive design even though it is one of the most important aspects of how much we love a car and how we you know perceive it and also is responsible for how we may have found our love for cars to be really honest so i mean i have a lamborghini aventador in front of me not not a real one i wish but it's a scale model i love scale models and i've been collecting quite a few since i was a kid but unfortunately after the lockdown they've stopped being sold at common places so yeah anyways that's a different 
rant for another day so yeah i have the lamborghini aventador scale model in front of me and even though it doesn't have an engine i it is made out of plastic the one i am looking at it still looks absolutely stunning and i don't know how many times i look at it uh, during my day i just it's in front of me and i have two screens in front of me and i, I have all my work going on but i just can't take my eyes off it every time and i've been looking at this car i've been ha i own this exact scale model since now uh i think about 9 years uh 2013 is when i bought it for my 13th birthday so yeah since 2013 i have it it's broken a left rear view mirror and quite dusty but the design of the aventador was so i don't think it's futuristic i think it's so timeless it's so aggressive and so characterful and yes these are all things <laughs> normally people use to describe design uh we use a lot of other things also like we as in transportation designers so this is just a very small example but it it, it just feels so pretty and that's the reason and it's not the thing with modern designs is they've not been designed by one person even though uh the company may say xyz has been responsible for the design it's never one person so how design begins i would say life in any car company today any i would say i mean even the smallest to the biggest uh is that first they they create a segment so the marketing or the market research people say okay there's this segment that needs to needs a car or the people who already um, uh, who have engineered a platform and it's already being sold like the murcielago was the car that the aventador replaced so the murcielago is already there so okay the lamborghini says we need a murcielago replacement so all right they sit around uh, they give a brief to their entire design team that we need a car that replaces the murcielago and of course there are other smaller details that they would give maybe saying needs to have be rear engine it needs to have a 6.2 liter v12 uh it needs to be four wheel drive uh etc etc other details maybe even specifics related to the packaging of the car so the package means how the drive train is uh, set in the car body how the passenger shell comes in uh what is the positioning of the passenger shell what is the dimensioning limits that they may have all these things come into picture but all these things are also kind of told to to keep in mind of course in the first stage they are not constrained by these things but they have to keep in mind because you can't really you know create a sketch in urus uh, and and say it it can be the murcielago replacement that that just doesn't work so after the brief is given and everyone's understood okay we need a replacement for the murcielago or whatever the brief might be for that particular car that is being that is supposed to be created uh they are divided into teams smaller teams multiple teams of course depending on the size of the design house and the company's capacity there can be 100 teams or there can be 10 teams or there can be two teams but they still divided into teams and then within these teams everyone is asked to create what they may feel as uh, they they may feel can be a potential design language or design direction that they can take for a uh, murcielago replacement in this case or for the car that they've been given a brief for so this there are multiple levels to this and this is when uh, this is how it shows that it's not designed by one person so now within this team everyone is creating a very rough idea of their of their imagination of their skills and their idea of what this car might be like and i mean they don't have to go into details at this stage it is a very uh, basic it's a very uh, straightforward and simple uh, sort of presentation that they have to create and this process also i mean i'm sure takes about a year at least where they just create proposals and then uh, each team internally looks at all the proposals and then decides okay we'll take the front end of this one the rear end of this one maybe the side elements of this one and then there becomes a finalized multiple sort of proposal where they think they they take a little bit of every design proposal not every uh, specifically but whatever designs that they may find to be appealing 
from those designs they take elements never is a entire design completely sort of accepted uh, it's very rare that happens and if it happens that means you're a brilliant brilliant designer because it's very rare to have multiple people who at a design stage multiple designers also for that matter agree at one point that okay this design looks absolutely fabulous and we can go ahead with it it never happens there's always personal opinion personal uh, thoughts and ideas and as a designer whenever you hear a brief of a car you say four seats uh, v8 engine four wheel drive whatever it might be this is just an example uh, there's an there's a different image in everyone's head there's someone who may imagine a suv uh that completely off road like someone can imagine a super saloon someone can imagine a absolute hypercar with four seats but it's all in their head and till they see what's in their head they will they will feel like this is not the right design and so that is why there will be a lot of disagreement and we also had as as teams we when we worked on our designs we had a lot of disagreements and a lot of sacrifice there were times we had to go ahead with the design proposal we were not very happy by we i mean i personally was not very happy with but as a team uh, everyone else liked it so i also had to go along and like it anyways coming back to the design sort of competition that would take place within a team so now within each team there's this design sort of competition that has taken place everyone created their own private proposals which they shared with their team and then the team unanimously decides that okay this part this part this part this part of this, these person's designs can make sense together or can look beautiful and can satisfy the brief that is given so then they all get together and work on synergizing this entire piece puzzle i would say so every so the front end of one guy's proposal and the rear end of another guy's proposal and the side profile of a third guy's proposal all of these need to work together in the final proposal of that team such that it feels like they belong on one car of course everyone's created a different design so in in the first stage it will all look like they belong on different cars because they are from different cars but in the final they have to look like they belong in the same car that is how the proposal will get selected so then another one year of sort of development i wouldn't say one year but these timelines are very flexible it depends on uh, the importance of the car the sort of uh timelines that they have as a company uh, that dictate how long these steps take i'm just giving an example of one year so then the entire team works together and creates a synergized perfect design so this one is a proper detailed design and they cover every aspect of it they cover how the doors will work how the doors will look uh, what are the cut lines uh, what are the uh, various dimensions it may have Uh, what sort of wheels it may have what sort of new interior it might have all these things are being worked upon uh, because every team has exterior designers interior designers all these things we color and trim designers so color and trim designers basically tell what kind of color combinations will work what kind of trim you can put up where can you put chrome and make it look more expensive rather than make it look cheap you know chrome is a very very i would say delicate thing to use a lot of chrome can make a car look cheap a lot of chrome can also make a car look extremely elegant it's just how you use it so anyways so the design team comes together and sort of works on creating an entire synergized team design and similarly is being done by multiple other teams and then all these teams once they finish this design come together and showcase their designs and then the company management comes uh, and of course the head designer the uh, head designer of the studio whatever that may be they are joined by the company executives the company higher ups and they come together and see every single proposal and from this proposal is one design selected and this design is still not the final design so one design is selected and then they create evolutions of that design and uh then also they have to work with the interior design department and then they start more detailed works as they get closer to finalizing the design they create clay models they create 3d models uh for better detailing better understanding of what the car might look like uh in in some sort of a plane so once this process begins they also begin prototyping the car in reality and you may start seeing test mules because now they know the basic shape of the car the basic idea that 
uh, it may hold the dimensions, the sort of form factor. And so they can start working upon it. And of course, there are test mules that they do for just mechanical bits before that. But from this point onwards, you will see the design, uh, the test mules to be actual cars, not bodies of other cars, just with mechanical elements. So taking example of the Ferrari Pure Sun, which is coming up. So when Ferrari was initially testing the bits, they were using a GT4C Lusso body. They were using FF body parts. Uh, they were using all of these body parts to just conceal. They were using a, actually they were using a Maserati Levante. Now I remember properly. They were using a Maserati Levante body uh, to hide the entire uh, component set that they have. But there was a point that they reached where suddenly instead of seeing a Maserati Levante as a test mule for the pure sang, people started seeing a different looking car which is completely covered in black. That's the moment Ferrari kind of started designing the final car because now they knew what it would look like the form factor it may hold the sort of ground clearance it may have the arches it may hold the, the length of the axles and the wheelbase all of these things became clear to them and so that they can st they could start using a sort of uh, first draft of the body parts on the actual car and slowly as and when the car starts tested and also the design team finally comes to a conclusion of the final design will you start seeing uh, test mules with actual body parts which we have started seeing recently for the pure sound uh, cars uh, with test mules with actual body parts of the car but that's also because ferrari started production and all of those things uh, but the general idea is that so this is the process of just one design and that is why it takes so long for a car to be designed because there are so many things that have to be designed everything from a bottle holder to how a phone will get connected and sit in the car while it's being used as a, as a connection for apple carplay maybe that every all of these things have to be designed in a way even the cable that connects the phone to the apple carplay if it's a part of the system or if it's a part of the entire package of the car it also has to be designed and there's no one person that can do this design because it's just too many things to design and if one person designs everything, there's a lot of room for error because there are preconceived notions. As humans, we have thoughts in our head which we think are correct, which may not be correct. And so that is why there are multiple levels that have uh, that are created within a design studio to check every single aspect of the design that is being finalized, to check that it's, it's right, if it's ergonomical, it will not harm the client, the customer, the the driver in any any way shape or form so i hope i kind of broke down and explained properly the the intricacies of automotive design and how it is very different from what we perceive it to be uh, i think it takes just as much effort to engineer the entire car as it takes to design an entire car because there's a lot of aspects of design that we overlook, we consider to be part of engineering, but it's actually a designer that has to keep in mind these things. I think that's that's about all I had to say in this this topic. Uh, for this topic, at least in at the time being, uh, maybe we'll come back to it some other time in the future and I can go into even more details and maybe you narrate my personal experience of working with Lamborghini. Well, before we begin the entire F1 coverage where I cover the Australian Grand Prix and the French Grand Prix, uh, well, we have some terrible news. I, I personally have been gutted since morning, I would say, since this news came out. Actually, it wasn't morning. It was early afternoon, mid-afternoon, something around those lines in, in India, at least, when... Uh, and Sebastian Vettel announced that he's going to be retiring from F1 after this season. And I just, I don't know. I mean, you can hear from my energy right now. It's just, I really don't like that idea. Sebastian Vettel has been one of the, I would say, most competent and most fulfilling F1 drivers to watch. And I mean, I, I, I was a kid when he started racing and he started winning also. And unfortunately, I didn't really follow much of his, his racing. But he's always been a class act and he's always been someone I could look up to. And I think everyone on, on the Formula 1 uh, 
in the Formula One circuit also feels the same way. So it's incredibly shocking as well as incredibly disheartening to know that he's going. I mean, he has his own reasons, which he's explained in his Instagram video. But yeah, it just feels like there's going to be a big hole in F1, which I don't know who can fill. And uh, this also shows the arrival of times where more F1 drivers who are well-known legends at this point may start retiring or may start considering to retire. And this move by uh, Vettel will, will only bring out a sort of cannonball effect and might uh, lead to more retirements. I just feel so sad about this. I just really hope that he's said it mid-season, so there are quite a few races still left. If it was my fantasy world, like I guess that, that's what I can call it. If it was my fantasy world, I would just have every single race, everyone just starts and then sets the car aside and lets Vettel win every single one of them and lets, lets him become a fifth-time world champion. I mean, just imagine uh, hearing, here comes Sebastian Vettel one last time because Sebastian Vettel is going to go. Anyways, let's let's continue with the F1 coverage. Let's start with the Austrian Grand Prix. Uh, so the Austrian Grand Prix was kind of divided into the sprint race and then the normal race, which happened on Sunday. Uh, the sprint race is, is a short, it's a new format that they've introduced. Some of the races have it, some of them don't. And it's like a short zero stop race where you just start to end. You don't have, you can't take any pit stops. You don't have to take any pit stops. And the rubber you start with is, is what it's going to be. Uh, the positions that you start with are going to stay, I think. I'm not sure yet about the rules. Again, this is my sort of gap in knowledge, I would say. But uh, so, so this race basically gives you points. So, so yeah, I think the first eight who finish, uh, the first eight get points in the sprint. Whereas in the normal race, the first 10 get the points. So this was a very interesting race. I think not much happened from what I remember. There were two DNFs. One was Alonso. He he couldn't get off the line uh, initially. And then they did another sort of uh, warm-up lap and tried to, you know, get it on. But Alonso uh, was going to start from the pitch, but he just couldn't. So they just did a DNF. Uh, Vettel also had a DNF in this race. Apart from that, everyone was, I mean, doing i would say fine more or less the the standings remain same uh first happened one and this sort of uh made us all feel like maybe it's it's gonna be first happens weekend but again we'll come to that later on i think the most interesting battle for me was uh magnuson hamilton and mick schumacher oh my god mick schumacher after the silverstone has suddenly gotten into his own just like he suddenly realized what his name was and uh, so Magnussen and uh, uh, Mick were ahead of Hamilton and Hamilton was in literally chasing them down the entire time and he was absolutely getting hammered by both the horses uh, but there was a team order I think or it was just a, a sort of miscommunication which didn't allow Magnussen to kind of help Mick defend Hamilton and so literally, I think two laps before the end, uh, Hamilton finally took over Mick and Mick was pushed out of the point. So Mick finished ninth uh, and Hamilton finished eighth uh, in the sprint race. So it was a, it, I would say it was a mild sprint race. There was nothing really interesting. I think maximum coverage was given to this battle because it was like, it, it felt surreal for Hamilton to be, get, to get, treated like uh, treated like this by Mick from uh, of our, all the people till now that we've seen so it was quite interesting to see that uh, now we can go on to the race the Austrian Grand Prix so so the fastest driver was Verstappen but Leclerc won as as we all know and it was quite an adventurous race I guess especially for Ferrari and uh, I think this race also kind of cemented Mercedes's, you know, arrival as a, as a revival team now. So the standings were Leclerc finishing first, followed by Verstappen, followed by Hamilton, 
followed by Russell, followed by Ocon, followed by Mick Schumacher at sixth position, followed by Norris, followed by Magnussen, followed by Ricardo at ninth, followed by Alonso, and that is the top 10. We had a few DNFs, but the most, I would say, hurtful DNFs were Perez as well as Sainz. So both McLaren, um, both Ferrari and uh, Red Bull faced uh, a sort of half their team dropping off literally. So the race started off uneventful. Uh, Verstappen started off faster, uh, followed by Leclerc, followed by Sainz and uh, followed by Perez and Hamilton and Russell and so on and so forth. Uh, so they were key on it and then they fell into the midfield. So basically Russell and Perez fell into the midfield and Leclerc, Sainz and Verstappen were at it. There came a point where almost Leclerc and Sainz were kind of fighting to get ahead. But this time it was better than what happened in the last race and there was more organization and uh, Leclerc took over uh, Sainz once and for all and cemented himself right behind Verstappen. Uh, the pace that Leclerc had in this race was incredible. If you look at the overall race, uh, Leclerc took over Verstappen three times. Three times and he did it in such a casual manner like no illegal cuts, no sort of, you know, uh, overstepping the brake limits, nothing like that. Just sheer pace and skill. And that's how he overtook Verstappen. Which was quite, uh, I would say quite enlightening to see finally at the same time Mick was doing wonders and he was upset from the sprint race with what happened and how he lost his position because he couldn't get support from Magnussen so this time they were working as a team and they were using each other's DRS to catapult each other forward and at, at one point uh, they were again blocking Hamilton at the back in the midfield but early on Hamilton did a takeover and finally took over Mick to to go ahead and cement himself at the podium eventually so so the race becomes a Leclerc science was tapping uh, followed by Hamilton Russell and uh, Perez sort of a affair but what happens in one of the turns there's a traffic sort of situation where Russell hits Perez so hard he just drives off into the gravel and uh, everyone assumes that it will be fine Perez is known now for fighting from the back all the way to the front and we all thought it, it's going to be the same this time also but unfortunately the damage was so harsh that Perez was out. Perez was the first DNF of this race. So the race continues, Verstappen keeps pushing, uh, he's closely chased by the Ferrari boys uh, but I think somewhere around the last 20 laps I don't know what happens. Carlos's Ferrari catches fire. Absolutely dangerously catches fire. This wasn't like a smoke or some sort of a small overheating issue. This was like the engine just said I'm done and exploded all over the uh, the track. And uh, thankfully Carlos didn't wasn't in a place where he couldn't stop so he just drove into the gravel which he likes to and tried to get out of the car as it absolutely got engulfed in flames and this was also quite a scene because well one Carlos is doing pretty good and it was going to be a Ferrari 1-2 pretty much no matter how badly Ferrari could have you know messed it up by strategy so that was something they were safe from in this race but I guess their reliability came back to bite them. So it's it's kind of like a slope where Carlos stops and his car is catching fire. But because Formula 1 cars don't have handbrakes, he really can't get out of the car till, till the marshals come and stop it because otherwise it'll just be a rolling fire car with that to roll onto the track. So it was quite a risky scene because uh, if Carlos stayed any longer trying to hold the car, he could have gotten burnt but thankfully at the right time the 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 marshal stepped in and kind of uh, saved the car from rolling back and helped carlos get out but carlos was gutted after the race like there were scenes where he was just sitting and being really upset because he was doing so strong so now we have Leclerc up front being single-handedly hammered by Verstappen and Hamilton behind him. Even though he had a comfortable read and he had incredible pace up till now, Leclerc also suddenly 
there's a radio message from Leclerc and everyone who liked Ferrari just just shagged themselves I would say because uh, now what because we already lost science now what happened to Leclerc and he's already in the lead he should not lose it and there's only 20 laps left apparently there's some issue with his pedal so the pedal was not getting completely depressed so once he pressed it down it would just stay there and he would have to manually put his leg in and pull it out which I mean I can imagine doing that in my normal car and freak the hell out. So doing that at 200 kilometers per hour in a race while you're being followed by two world champions is is quite a risky situation. I mean, hats off to Charles for doing it. And somehow he just manages to push his gap between uh, Verstappen and Leclerc. I mean, between uh, them both initially was pretty big. But as, as the laps kept getting... Uh, closer to the finish line uh, the gap started to decrease and we were all scared that there would come a point where because Leclerc can't push because he's so focused on trying to get this pedal right he would get taken over by Stappen and then eventually by Hamilton and his his confirmed victory will be pushed into a podium maybe and maybe even behind that but thankfully nothing of this sort happens and Leclerc wins the Austrian Grand Prix. Now let's move on to the French Grand Prix, which was I think a week later. It's been back-to-back races, and now uh, right after this podcast comes out, we have the Hungarian Grand Prix, which I hope everyone just lets Sebastian Vettel win. Come on, please, please do it. So let's get started with the French Grand Prix now. Uh, well. I don't know. I didn't feel like it was a very adventurous uh, sort of race. Uh, I think the same applies for the Austrian race as well. But I think the highlights there were the performance of Mick and of course uh, the disasters with Ferrari and uh, I mean partial uh, disaster for Ferrari and partial win for Ferrari. Uh, but there was some, you know, excitement there. I don't think this race, uh, the, the French Grand Prix, the the Paul Ricard Grand Prix, uh, had had that sort of excitement. Uh, as uh, we all feared, I mean, I'm kind of biased towards Ferrari because we all love it, sort of. Uh, but, yeah, as we all feared, they, they messed up so bad. At this point, I don't know how Carlos and Charles are even, you know, facing them. So let's get started. So the starting grid was pretty straightforward with Charles, who did very well in the qualifying, even though uh, in the uh, FP1, FP2s and FP3s, Max was uh, doing better. And the the prediction was that Max would uh, definitely start on pole uh, for the qualifying, but he didn't. And Charles really picked up his form in the qualifyings, which then made us expect that in the race Charles is going to do some crazy magic but so the starting grid was Charles followed by Max, Sergio, Lewis, Lando, George, uh, Yuki Sonoda somehow at 8th position then uh, Ricardo at ninth, which again is I think great for him uh, then there was Ocon, Bottas, uh, Vettel and uh, Carlos and Kevin Magnussen both of them had some sort of a engine replacement uh, at the last minute so even though they actually made it to the uh, q3s uh, in in the qualifying they still started from the back so carlos was 19th and kevin magnuson was 20th so ferrari already is sort of dispersed so i think we can see the pattern here where ferrari usually wins if they have the driver starting up front even then, it's not a confirmed double points victory, but it's a one-point victory at least, which didn't happen this time. Uh, Carlos also was in brilliant form, and that is how he helped Charles in the qualifying sort of gain all the ground against Max and start up front. Uh, Carlos literally sabotaged himself. He kind of created like a, a wind effect where he led uh, Charles into the field and allowed him clean air uh, which because he, he anyways wasn't uh, going to get the points to be considered I mean the times to be considered anyways so both Ferrari drivers are doing phenomenal and are in the perfect form they could be in uh, for this race so the expectations are high 
uh, the expectation was Carlos will fight through everyone from 19th and come to at least 4th or 5th or 3rd which he does but uh, it's a tragic story so the race starts and usually what happens in such cases is when Charles is at pole and he's followed by Max um, in the beginning at least Max sort of over uh, pressurizes Charles and kind of takes over and then it's a it's a cat fight between these two where they keep taking over each other and in the Austrian GP there were multiple instances when Max took over Charles for uh, due to some reason or the other but Charles always got back in front so then his pace was incredible that time and the Red Bull was lacking somehow and this time the, that wasn't the case but still Charles kept his composure kept his form and kept going really quick uh, but yeah so that that was the main event that was happening uh, in the midfield Ocon just yeeted uh, uh, Sonora to the point where his, his car was beyond repair there's a lot of yeeting happening this way so yeeting uh, by yeeting I don't know if you guys know what it means uh, basically means it's just a term to say that one car touched the other car and literally threw it off track and there were at least five instances of this happening with so many people I think uh, Mick Schumacher got thrown out uh, there was more more people who just kept crashing into each other Esteban Ocon uh, I think Pierre Gasly also at some point they just crashed into each other and it was just like the nudges basically they, they didn't actually have damage I think uh, only Sonoda was uh, the one who had major damage and uh, uh, Latifi and Magnuson had damage later on from such similar incidents of yeeting each other basically so yeah the race starts and it's pretty uneventful uh, somehow Charles has gotten the grip and Carlos also is doing well he's fighting at the back uh, climbing up real fast uh, Magnuson was also following him but Magnuson got stopped I think uh, so that they all started most of them started with medium tires but the thing is France is currently having a heat wave sort of thing so the track temperatures were really high and once the cars went out they all realized that they really need to play around the strategy to understand how they can optimally you know utilize tire degradation tire heating as well as the entire strategy related to tires also the pit lane was slightly longer so the time approximation there was also a bit moved away uh, so yeah after the race starts everyone's also looking at their tires carefully trying to make make better strategies with with the tire management uh, and yeah around 20 laps where uh, so uh, there's the situation is that it's uh, Charles followed by Max followed by Lewis followed by Perez who's they're all doing really good they're all having great pace followed by uh, I think George uh, Alonso and Lando were kind of neck and neck also uh, not going at it uh, all three of them like we saw in Silverstone but they were also you know exchanging places and going about uh, changing uh, changing ranks so what happens around 20th is Charles spins and crashes into the barriers I mean I don't know if you can hear the pain in my voice but oh god and he was so frustrated and I think we all were frustrated and I have this conspiracy theory now I don't know if it's true or not but so after the race Charles said it was his fault and like if he tries like this he doesn't deserve to win the championship but I feel because of hearing the radio conversation so when this happens Charles gets on the radio and we all we all are hearing this conversation where he's talking to uh, the team and he's like I can't get off the gas pedal the, the gas pedal is not coming up and this is exactly the issue that he was facing in Austria in Austria he somehow managed it but it somehow seems like that issue persisted and what happened was he's actually so he was already having tire degradation he was supposed to kind of pit in the next one or two laps because of the heating issues and they're like bulges on his tire which again happens to Carlos and a few other people also on track so that was already causing a sort of mixed uh, grip approach so that is why he was kind of underconfident but at the same time he was he was gathering great pace and uh, he was supposed to pit in the next one or two laps which again Ferrari messed up strategy they didn't pit him at the right time to save his tire degradation so anyways so this 
the car sort of drifts off a corner and I think he lifts off the pedal and gets on a sort of different gear to kind of get it back on track but this problem occurs again this is my hypothesis as per as per the official statement that's given by Charles and also uh, Ferrari is that this was a, this was a pro problem with the a problem of Charles of not being able to take the turn properly and like uh, going off track but I feel that it was again this pedal issue the accelerator issue and the accelerator didn't go off and hence he kind of kept going into the barriers and then he crashed also at that same time what happens is he tries to reverse to get out of the barriers and again complete his race instead of getting a DNF which again doesn't happen because again the pedal is stuck which they are denying it for now but I think internally they all know what happened and I, I don't know why Ferrari is doing this this is such a frustrating thing it how do you even drive in such a situation you need insane skill but anyway so that's how Charles is screwed so we all look at Carlos going you're the only hope and he he's doing pretty well everyone almost everyone is more or less on the situation when uh, more or less at the same uh, positioning when towards the finishing also so this keeps happening Carlos is fighting and towards the end I think about 40 laps in it's a 53 lap race uh, Carlos is neck and neck with Perez so Perez was third uh, Carlos was fifth uh, followed by George and uh, Alonso so Carlos is fighting with Perez to get on uh, to third to get onto the podium somehow and get Ferrari the points it so dearly needs and while he's in the middle of this fight Ferrari uh, the radio comes through and says a box I mean are you not looking at what's happening are you not seeing he's literally and this is not even I mean it might be there might be some delays uh, in between the transmission to us as viewers and, and the actual transmission to to Carlos from the team but to us it looked like while he was on the turn trying to take over uh, Checo is when this message came in so just imagine trying to communicate to your team that I am in the middle of something while they are also you know uh, while you're trying to fight Checo Perez who's in great form this season with the Red Bull so anyways he tries to take them away he's, he's a third now and he's going strong but then Ferrari calls him for a pit stop and he's literally saying why I don't understand I don't understand but Ferrari's like it's a strategy it's a strategy Carlos you have tire degradation so you need to come in so alright he goes in he loses everything he's, he's at ninth now so we have again Max followed by Lewis followed by Checo followed by George uh, and Alonso, Lando, Ocon and so on and so forth and that's how the grid is right now so again Carlos comes in and because of his incredible pace he keeps fighting he keeps climbing but it's, it's too late now also I think it was whose Ferrari was uh, whose car was it yeah uh, I think it was Zogu and you who I think uh, had a issue with uh, with the Alpha and that's when the sort of yellow flag came in so Zog when use cars just, just shuts off so he uh, sort of gets off track and there's a virtual safety car not a yellow flag like oh, what happened during uh, Charles going into the barriers but uh, it's a, a virtual safety car so all the cars are again packed together and this is when uh, as soon as the race resumes I don't know what Pe uh, Checo was doing but he kind of dozes off not literally but kind of figuratively in, in terms of his strategy and his like speed and George takes him over and he's it literally feels like Checo was just sitting on the track and uh, George just came in swooped in and took him away and so now that the positioning is uh, Max followed by Lewis followed by George so a double Mercedes podium after so freaking long uh, takes place uh, followed by Perez followed by Saints who's finally gotten up to uh, the fifth position now after so much hard work and has almost lost it because there's only like five laps left uh, he keeps fighting even Perez keeps fighting to George to somehow get his position back because he just literally snapped out of it as soon as uh, Russell passed him anyway so this is the final this is how the race comes to an end so we have I think Joe Guanu is also a DNF I don't know why they've not 
kind of mentioned it anywhere. Uh, Nicholas Latifi was a DNF. Magnuson was a DNF. Leclerc obviously was a DNF. Yuki Tsunoda was a very early DNF. So the situation is Max followed by Lewis, followed by Russell, followed by Sergio, followed by Sainz, uh, followed by Alonso, followed by Lando uh, and uh, Ocon and Ricardo. So double McLaren points finish also. And Lance Stroll. So last during the last lap is when they start show this that Lance is followed by Vettel very closely and at the final turning towards the finish line is Vettel literally tries to fight Stroll to get the position. And I don't know how that's going to work out with McLaren. I mean, with Aston Martin and how Stroll's father owns Aston Martin. So that'll be something to see. But yeah, that brings us to the end of the point zone. So the Stroll gets some points for Aston Martin, which I think is good. Uh, I would have loved to see Vettel get points, but that's just me being kind of biased towards Vettel. So yeah, that's more or less uh, the final French Grand Prix. I think the highlights were how how badly Ferrari messed up. I mean, I don't know. I couldn't even gather the courage to see the post uh, post race interviews because I know Ferrari has a stronghold, so they won't let the drivers say that there was a strategy issue. But we all could see there was a strategy issue, and I think there are a few interviews of Charles and uh, Carlos, both of them saying that it was not a strategy issue and like the team strategy was right which i i really don't think so because the timings were so so bad i just can't um, they could have done a brilliant job and both their drivers are doing so well and the car also is kind of doing well it's just it's all about the strategy at this point and if they don't get it right they will slip very very far they're already slipping so it's a few matter of few more races mercedes will catch up and become a red bull versus mercedes all over again towards the end of the season so with that we come to an end for today's podcast and today's f1 news coverage of course uh we'll be back soon i can't say next week because i don't know if we'll come be coming back next week because if you don't have enough information you have stuff going around it would make sense to a podcast just for a story time you know so we'll be back soon i guess uh till then the two people who are listening should continue listening i'm guessing so yeah that's about it on that we end so stay safe and also follow us on our social media accounts you can email us suggestions at the indian car person at the gmail.com and follow us on the indian car person uh, uh on instagram as well and stay tuned keep listening and stay safe